Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. Along with Mother Lorraine Marie, I'd like to begin by thanking Franciscan University of Steubenville for bestowing this honor on our congregation. I'd like to thank especially uh, Father Sheridan, president of the university, Michael Hernan, and the very Reverend Richard Davis, minister provincial of the Sacred Heart Province and chairman of the board. That's a lot in one mouthful. <laughs> Members of the board, faculty, administrators, staff, students, alumni, and friends, thank you all for being here this evening. I stand before you very conscious of past recipients of the Pavarello, Pavarello Medal, not the least of whom was Blessed Mother Teresa of Calcutta. It's quite intimidating to stand where she once stood, so to speak. I realized weeks ago that it's probably safe to assume that I have larger feet than she, but there's no way I could ever fill her sandals, so I won't really try. <laughs> I'm also mindful of the life and example of Father Benedict Groeschel, whom, as Mother mentioned, passed away last week at our home in Totem, New Jersey, and who was buried today. What I'd like to do this evening is to take us on a journey. The saint we all know as the Pavarello was given the name Francis because of his parents' admiration for all things French. And our foundress, Saint Jean Jugan, was French. So I'd like to begin our journey this evening in France. To be more specific, I invite you to join me in a renowned French restaurant in a village in the French Alps. Why a restaurant, you might wonder. Well, it's because of a recent movie that takes place in a French restaurant. You see, I come from a family of gourmet cooks and foodies. Even my 15-year-old nephew, and I think this is pretty unusual, loves to cook. So my curiosity was piqued by the movie The Hundred Foot Journey, which came out this past summer. As little sisters, we don't go to the movies, but I managed to, to get a copy of the original book by Richard Moray and read it during a train ride on my way to retreat a few weeks ago. As often happens, there are significant differences between the book and the movie. I know this because I compared notes with my mother who saw the film. Not surprisingly, I prefer the book to the movie, so I'll refer to that. In a nutshell, the story involves a haughty old woman who owns a Michelin-starred restaurant in a small village in the French Alps, and an Indian family who arrives in her village and opens what she considers to be an utterly tacky Indian restaurant right across the street, or a mere 100 feet from her front door. The French woman, named Madame Mallory, looks upon her new neighbors with disdain and decides to do whatever it takes to drive them out of town, even as she recognizes that the son, Hassan, is a gifted chef with enormous potential. Hassan's father responds to each of Madame Mallory's efforts to sabotage their success with cunning counterattacks of his own. The tension builds until Madame Mallory confronts the older man in the Indian restaurant's kitchen, 
leading to an altercation during which Hassan is seriously burned. As the young chef lies in a hospital bed, Madame Mallory's assistant finally confronts her. Look what you've accomplished with your life, he says. You have such fortune, and what have you given back to the world but selfishness? What have you given to the world but selfishness? Surely this question is one with which none of us would wish to be confronted, but it is worth pondering. What are we accomplishing with our lives? What are we giving back to the world? Hopefully, more than selfishness and two Michelin stars. When Hassan is released from the hospital, Madame Mallory tries to make amends by urging him to move across the street so that she can take him under her wing and teach him the art of French cooking. She wants to help him fulfill his enormous potential and become a world-class chef. As Hassan packs his bag and crosses the street, we read his thoughts. It was such a small journey in feet, but it felt as if I were striding from one end of the universe to the other, the light of the Alps illuminating my way. And so with these lines, we understand the significance of the book's title, The Hundred Foot Journey. While the book presents Hassan's move to the French restaurant as the hundred foot journey, I was more deeply struck by Madame Mallory's journey, which is presented as nothing less than a profound spiritual conversion. Backing up a few pages, we find her sitting alone in a deserted country chapel after Hassan's accident. I hope you won't mind if I read directly from the book because I think it's very striking, and after all, we're at a university, so I should sound kind of literary. <laughs> Moray writes, the air is laden with a cold and musty rot. The chapel's wooden crucifix stands stiffly and mechanically erect, and the unlit oil lamp to the side of the altar is caught up in a dewy net of cobwebs. Not a flower, not a melted candle or even a burned matchstick. No sign of human life. It is then that Madame Mallory realizes the chapel has died. That long ago, all religious meaning had slipped from the neglected room. And as Mallory sits stiffly on that pew, clutching that basket in her lap, her soul fills with a horrific thought. How cold this chamber. Dear God, how cold this chamber. The feeling is unbearable and she tries to fight against the discomfort. She lights a match, leans forward to bring some life to the altar lamp. In this small gesture, everything changes. For when the flaring match meets the oil lamp's wick, the chapel convulses violently in new light and shadows. The crucifix leaps a crowd across the room, an emaciated and tortured man imploring her with outstretched arms. The Last Supper, too, has been transformed by the lamp's light. But it is not the weak-chinned Christ gazing wanly out over the horizon that catches her attention, but the table itself, groaning under a feast. Figs in port wine, a white clump of sheep's cheese, a leg of roast mutton, and a dish of herbs. 
a boar's head on a plate. It is in the eyes of that boar that lock on her, a decapitated head curiously full of life and a trembling Mallory, always brave, she forces herself to look resolutely back at the animal. And in the depths of those glinting little eyes, she sees the balance sheet of her life, an endless list of credits and debits, of accomplishments and failures, small acts of kindness, and real acts of cruelty. And the tears finally come as she looks away, for she knows how long ago the credits stopped while the debits of vanity and selfishness run on and on. In her involuntary cry for mercy, it rings out into the chapel, witnessed only by a painted boar with a puckish, tooth-tusked smile. Voila, Madame Mallory's 100-foot journey. From that moment forward, she lived differently, dedicating herself to educating the gifted young chef. The 100-foot journey is just a story, but I think each of us can imagine a moment in life, or more likely, many moments, when we have been confronted with the truth about ourselves and have had to make the choice between continuing down a dead-end path of self-absorption or making an exodus away from ourselves on a hundred-foot journey towards others and ultimately toward God. Pope Francis speaks of this moving from self to the other and the other, the other, repeatedly in Evangelii Gaudium. Being a Christian is not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty idea, but the encounter with an event, a person, which gives life a new horizon and a decisive direction. Here he was quoting from Pope Benedict from Deus Caritas Est. Thanks solely to this encounter or renewed encounter with God's love, which blossoms into an enriching friendship, we are liberated from our narrowness and self-absorption. We become fully human when we become more than human, when we let God bring us beyond ourselves in order to attain the fullest truth of our being. Another quote, the drive to go forth and give, to go out from ourselves, to keep pressing forward in our sowing of the good seed remains ever present. The Lord says, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for this is why I came. Before all else, the gospel invites us to respond to the God of love who saves us, to see God in others, and to go forth from ourselves to seek the good of others. And the last quote, to go out of ourselves and to join others is healthy for us. To be self-enclosed is to taste the bitter poison of imminence and humanity be humanity will be worse for every selfish choice we make. We can see this hundred-foot journey in the lives of many saints, beginning with your patron, St. Francis. Before I even knew St. John Jugan, I had a great love and admiration for the Pavarello. In fact, the last term paper of my undergraduate career in a secular university, no less, was on St. Francis and his ideas about money and voluntary poverty. 
but I had never realized until I was pre preparing for this talk that the pivotal event in Francis's life was his encounter with the leper on the side of the road. Prior to this meeting, Francis had a natural horror of lepers to the point that he would go miles out of his way to avoid having to come in contact with them. But then one day, everything changed. As we read in Valerie Martin's Salvation, Scenes from the Life of St. Francis. I quote, the leper stands in the middle of the road, perfectly still. He's dressed in a filthy garment which hangs loosely upon his emaciated body. He regards Francesco and the horse steadily, his head slightly turned and his chin lifted, the better to see them, for his disease has eaten away half of his face and he only has one eye. Francesco does not speak, he cannot move. They face each other on the road, the sun pours down over them so that there are no shadows anywhere, nothing to soften or dim the reality of this encounter and nowhere to hide from the necessity of playing it out. The leper's eye drills into Francesco. He can feel it penetrating into his brain. From childhood, he has had a horror of lepers and he has always avoided the Lazaretto at the foot of Mount Subasio, where they sometimes congregate in the road, ringing their bells and calling out for alms. The stench rising from their rotting flesh, their phlegmy guttural voices pursue him in dreams from which he wakes sweating and shouting for help. But this is no dream. And there is no point of shouting now, for no one will hear. He glances back down the road and into the neat ranks of olive trees. The world is uncommonly still. He could ride on. There's no reason to stop. Again, Francesco looks down upon the solitary figure of the leper who has not moved a muscle. Francesco has the sense that he has been standing there in his path forever. Francesco turns his face to the man who is there, waiting for him. The leper watches him with interest. His blasted face is bathed in sunlight. The black hole that was his eye has a steely sheen, and a few moist drops on his lips glitter like precious stones. He moves at last, extending his hand slowly, palm up before him. This supplicating gesture releases Francesco, for it dictates the counter gesture, which he realizes he longs to make. Without hesitation, he strides across the distance, separating him from his obligation, smiling all the while as if stepping out to greet an old and dear friend. He is closer now than he has ever been to one of these unfortunate beings. And the old familiar reaction of disgust and nausea rises up, nearly choking him, but he battles it down. He can hear the rasp of the leper's diseased, difficult breath rattling and wet. He drops to one knee before the outstretched hand, which is hardly recognizable as a hand, but is rather a lumpous, misshapen thing. Carefully, Francesco places his coin in the open palm where it glitters hot and white. He understands that this world is gone from him now, that there is no turning back. Tenderly, he takes the leper's hand. Tenderly, he brings it to his lips. 
At once his mouth is flooded with an unearthly sweetness which pours over his tongue, sweet and hot, burning his throat and bringing sudden tears to his eyes. These tears moisten the corrupted hand and he presses it to his mouth. Then the two men clutch each other, their faces pressed close together, their arms entwined. This was Francis's hundred foot journey. The moment he passed definitively from a self-centered existence to a life given to others. In the words of Marie Bodo, himself a friar and the author of Francis, The Journey and the Dream, that kiss directed his heart for the first time toward someone worth loving other than himself. He began that day to breathe out more than to breathe in, to turn outwards rather than inwards. He had finally found the courage to leap across that deep chasm that separated him from the other, from loving what he feared would demand more of him than he could give. Bodo continues, in keeping his eyes on the leper, in thinking only of this person before him, he forgot himself. He forgot the chasm beneath him, and he ran straight across the void into the arms of love and happiness. For Francis, the journey from his perch atop a fine horse into the arms of the leper was dramatic and life-changing. Our foundress, St. John Jugan, experienced the 100-foot journey in a less dramatic way, in stages which stretched across a lifetime. Unlike Francis, she knew poverty, hard work, and sacrifice from an early age. When she was 18, a young man asked for her hand in marriage, but Jeanne was not ready to commit herself, so she asked him to wait. Six years later, he returned, but this time Jeanne definitively declined his proposal, telling her mother that she felt that God wanted her for himself. Soon after, Jeanne gave most of her belongings away to her sisters, setting out to work in a hospital in a nearby town. For a young woman in 19th century France, this was a defining moment, the first major step in her long hundred foot journey. Jeanne lived simply, pursued a committed spiritual life as a member of a Catholic lay movement and did what she could to help the less fortunate. Many years passed, and we might say that she settled into a more or less comfortable life as a Catholic laywoman. But then, perhaps when she least expected it, but just as surely as God had waited for Francis in the leper, God was waiting for her in the person of an elderly, blind, and infirm woman who had no one to care for her. Jean literally picked the woman up and carried her home along a path that would change her life forever. It was Jean's hundred-foot journey, the moment when she crossed over from being a very good, pious, single woman to being a soul on fire, totally given to God and the poor as the foundress of a new religious community. What made Jean Chugan's journey so remarkable was the way she so readily made the leap from offering charity to the poor from the relative comfort and security of her own home to throwing the doors of her small apartment wide open to welcome the elderly into her very life as members of her own family. 
She completely threw her lot in with the elderly poor, sharing everything with them and holding back nothing for herself. She became poor among the poor, and all that mattered to her was making the elderly happy. Pope Francis has said that the disciple takes initiative and is ready to put his or her whole life on the line. This is just what John Gigan did. I believe that in her own life and in the young community she founded, St. John Gigan exemplified what our Holy Father has written in Evangelii Gaudium. I quote, an evangelizing community knows that the Lord has taken the initiative. He has loved us first, and therefore we can move forward, boldly taking the initiative, go out to others, seek those who have fallen away, stand at the crossroads, and welcome the outcast. Such a community has an endless desire to show mercy, the fruit of its own experience of the power of the Father's infinite mercy. Let us try a little harder to take the first step and to become involved. Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. The Lord gets involved, and he involves his own. As he kneels to wash their feet, he tells his disciples, you will be blessed if you do this. An evangelizing community gets involved by work and deed in people's daily lives. It bridges distances. It is willing to abase itself if necessary, and it embraces human life, touching the, touching the suffering flesh of Christ in others. Evangelizers thus take on the smell of the sheep, and the sheep are willing to hear their voice. An evangelizing community is also supportive, standing by people at every step of the way, no matter how difficult or lengthy this may prove to be. It is familiar with patient expectation and apostolic endurance. Evangelization consists of patience and disregard for constraints of time. In becoming poor among the poor, St. John took on the smell of the sheep. She and her sisters daily touched and continued to touch the suffering flesh of Christ in others. Like our foundress, we strive to stand by the elderly at every step of their journey, accompanying them with dignity and love until the moment when God calls them to himself. In Evangelii Gaudium, Pope Francis also describes a spirituality of drawing nearer to others and seeking their welfare a spirituality which she says opens our hearts wide to the Lord's greatest gifts. The spirituality of drawing nearer to others is at the very heart of our vow of hospitality to the elderly poor. St. John Jugan often counseled her spiritual daughters to be little, very little, before God. She was convinced that by being little and humble, the little sisters would be close to the least. This is our charism in a nutshell. This is the secret to making the elderly happy, the ideal that John Jugan passed on to us little sisters. It is not enough to give the elderly food and shelter. We must give them a certain quality of relationship to draw them out of the isolation that often characterizes old age. This nearness leads to what Pope Benedict describes so beautifully in Deus Caritas Est. Quote, 
I learn to look on this other person, not simply with my eyes and my feelings, but from the perspective of Jesus Christ. His friend is my friend. Going beyond exterior appearances, I perceive in others an interior desire for a sign of love, of concern. Seeing with the eyes of Christ, I can give to others much more than their outward necessities. I can give them the look of love which they crave. This evening, I've tried to take us on a spiritual journey, beginning in an imaginary alpine village where we witnessed the conversion of a cranky old French chef, continuing on to Assisi where we witnessed the Pavarello's leap from self-absorption to a mad love for Christ in the person of the outcast, and then back to France where St. John Jugan has taught us how to take on the smell of the sheep through the spirituality of nearness. As we wait for Madame Mallory to bring us the check for this evening's meal, let's take a moment to consider a few questions. Am I merely out for my own gain, or am I willing to set aside my own goals to help others grow and develop their potential? Am I fundamentally turned outwards toward God and others, or inwards toward myself? Do I breathe inward or outward? Who in my life is the alien, the outcast, the cripple, the loser, the loner, or the nerd who is reaching out toward me and craving my look of love? What are the obstacles standing between me and the other, between me and the other? Finally, what hundred-foot journey do I need to make? And what is the first step that God is waiting to help me make along this journey? Before closing, I'd like to share with you a story that Pope Francis told in one of his daily homilies. There was a father, mother, and their many children, and a grandfather lived with them. He was quite old, and when he was at table eating soup, he would get everything dirty. His mouth, the napkin, it was not a pretty sight. One day the father said that given what was happening to the grandfather, from that day on, he would eat alone. So he bought a little table and placed it in the kitchen. And so the grandfather ate alone in the kitchen while the family ate in the dining room. After some days, the father returned home from work and found one of his children playing with wood. He asked him, what are you doing? To which the child replied, I'm playing carpenter. And what are you building, the father asked. A table for you, Papa, for when you get old like Grandpa. Okay, so I just told you this story because I'd like to close with a plea. Our Holy Father related this scene as an appeal to resist the tendency of our current Western culture to marginalize and isolate the elderly. I would like to do the same. Whatever you are studying, whether it be nursing, social work, psychology, political science, economics, or theology, I would like to suggest that the aging of our society may be the most significant phenomenon looming on the horizon just beyond your college world. The elderly, in all their presumed uncoolness and outdatedness, might be the contemporary outcasts 
beckoning you to make the 100-foot journey from youthful self-absorption to a more caring, purposeful Christian life. Why do I say this? The population of senior citizens in our country is increasing faster than any other demographic group. By 2030, people 65 and over are expected to represent 19% of the U.S. population. At the same time, geriatric education is severely lacking on all levels and in all disciplines. According to the Alliance for Aging Research, the United States will need about 37,000 geriatricians in the year 2030. In 2007, there were 7,128 geriatricians in the United States, and it is estimated that the number will increase less than 10% by 2030. You can do the math. It's quite obvious that as a society, we are woefully ill-prepared to face the radically increasing number of elders in our midst. Pope Francis had a wonderfully close relationship with his own grandmother, and he frequently urges people of all ages, including young people, to visit senior citizens and to patiently build a more diverse, more welcoming, more humane, more inclusive society that does not need to discard the weak in body and mind. Society, he says, should measure its success on how the weak are cared for. Together with him, I urge you to fight against the tendency to marginalize and abandon the elderly, to commit what the Pope refers to as hidden euthanasia. Instead, make the 100-foot journey from self to other-centeredness and join in building a, count, a culture of encounter, a covenant between generations where, in the words of Pope Francis, the young give the strength which enables a people to move forward, while the elderly consolidate this strength by their memory and their traditional wisdom. In this way, you will find life to be so much richer and more rewarding. And someday, when you are old, you will have a place of honor at the table of your children and your children's children. Thank you. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.